gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. Welcome to all of you as we open God's Word together. Continue our journey through the book of Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1 to 5 says this. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be, be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up in conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. As we read this passage, we see very quickly that he is talking about bondservants, masters, instructions to Timothy to continue to teach and to instruct the congregation, and then warnings regarding, frankly, the heart of a fool, the foolish heart that is puffed up and is unlearnable and is unteachable. As we go through 1 Timothy, Paul has been giving the church in Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? This is the city, the ancient city. You can go there today. I've been there on a majestic ruin in terms of the scope of the city, its financial and societal capital in its day, and its ability to influence. And it's here that the church took root, a church that was facing many challenges both internally and externally. So Paul is writing to Timothy, the elder, one of the elders of this church, to give instructions for how the church should live. He warns them of false teachers. In chapter 1, we see that he reminds Timothy to remember the gospel, to not be drawn aside from what Christ has done on the cross. He also, in chapter 2, reminds them of what God-honoring worship is. Men, don't bring your anger. Women, don't bring your vanity. Come in together as brothers and sisters in Christ in order to worship well. He talks about male and female roles. He talks about godly leadership and godly helpers, elders and deacons in chapter 3. He gives instruction for Christocentric doctrine. We see that great creed in the middle of chapter 3 where we see Jesus as manifested in the flesh, taken up in glory, and some other aspects of his ministry. In chapter 4, he gives warning about demonic didactics, the teaching of demons. The demonic entities are always looking to teach good religion. This always surprises people. When we think of the demonic, it's always like the church of Satan or some sort of aberrant temple of doom type of scenario. But that's not what demons preeminently engage in. They teach good religion. The main thing they teach, however, is justification, being made right with God, being made right with God, though, through the flesh, through our own efforts. The demonic teaches justification by the flesh. The gospel teaches being made right with God, justification through the righteousness of Christ alone. It's a key difference in understanding what is right and wrong doctrine. 
He gives directives for godliness. And then he moves into the end of chapter 5, or beginning of chapter 5 through the beginning of chapter 6, in honoring one another. And he says you need to honor one another. You need to honor widows. You need to honor elders. And you also need to honor employers, going into the beginning of chapter 6 where we just are. And that if anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at verse 3 there in chapter 6. If anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, the words of Christ and the teaching that produces and that is in line with godliness that we see in Christ, if you refuse that, it's because you're puffed up with conceit. Here's a big idea for this morning. It's a question, but it's also a big idea. Are you teachable or are you too puffed up? Are you teachable or are you too puffed up? Because Paul has been giving instructions all the way through Timothy, and now he comes to chapter 6 and he says, are you listening? Some are not listening because they're puffed up with conceit, pride. They've got it all figured out, and they're not listening. They've heard it all before. They don't like the preacher's style, whatever it may be, and they're not listening. So the question is to us, are we? Are you teachable? Do you have a wise heart that yearns for instruction, knowledge, and even rebuke? Or is your heart closed? Because again, well, the preacher's not my style. Or I've heard all this before. Or maybe dismissive because it's just being so legalistic. We don't need to take it that seriously. So we dismiss it. Scripture says that the one who's puffed up with conceit understands nothing. They have no understanding because they're filled up with what they think is understanding. I find it terrifying personally. I find it terrifying how easy it is to fall in love with myself. You say, what? That sounds very awkward. But, but it's true, isn't it? It is so easy to fall in love with ourselves. And what I mean by that is falling in love with what we need, what we want. And the universe is oriented around ourselves. I'm tempted to think way too highly of my own abilities and to orient everybody else around me. That's the human heart. It is the human heart. It's something we all struggle with. I'm, I'm, I find it disturbing when I look into my own heart and how quickly I want this world. The desires for this world are strong. They're woven deeply into me. How quickly my heart tends to foolishness. Psalm 131, this is what I, I, I want my heart to be this. Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. I'm ready to receive. I've prepared my heart to learn. The learning heart is the wise heart. The puffed up heart, the filled up heart that is not listening and not learning is the heart full of pride. I've asked the Lord even this morning to deflate my pride so I can have a teachable learning heart. And I pray that that is something that I will constantly ask for. And that if I stop asking for it, that people will tell me that the Lord will show me. 
And I pray that this morning as well that you will say, Lord, help me as we go through 1 Timothy to learn, to grow, to be teachable. Do you have a wise heart or the heart of a fool? My heart tends towards foolishness. I think all of ours does. Let's go back 3,000 years and see old Israeli wisdom penned by the Holy Spirit of God through King Solomon in the book of Proverbs. And if we look through Proverbs and we see the characteristics of the foolish heart, well, what are some of those? Let me read some of those to you. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 10.8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Translation, too busy talking to listen. Too busy speaking and telling and giving thoughts without ever stopping to listen. Proverbs 10.23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. The people who think that being a rebel is cool or flirting with the lines of unrighteousness. You know what the Bible says? Pardon the, the parlance. You're an idiot. I'm sorry, but that is what, if we're talking about fool, fool actually has a stronger connotation. If you're offended by the word idiot, fool in the Hebrew, call someone a fool, it is, it is one of the heights of insult. This is strong language. You flirt with sin and you think it's funny? Foolish. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Yeah, the foolish heart is self-determining in their own standards of right and wrong. They don't look to the word. They don't look to wisdom. They determine what they think is right or wrong. Proverbs 15, 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, but no, not so the heart of the fool. Wisdom spreads knowledge, foolishness does not. Proverbs 17, 7, fine speech is not becoming to a fool. <laughs> they, they don't care about their words. They're careless with their words and their coarse language. Proverbs 17, 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. The fool refuses to receive correction or rebuke. Proverbs 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin. Does not James 3 talk about the mouth, the tongue, that controlling the mouth and the tongue is a sign of wisdom and godliness? Proverbs 29 verse 9, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, listen to this, the fool only rages and laughs. Foolishness is marked by not intelligent, wise conversation, but by raging and just laughing it off. <laughs> you, you don't know what you're talking about. Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So the fool prides himself and, well, I'm just speaking my mind. I'm being authentic. You need to be a little less authentic and a little more righteous. The fool prides himself, well, I just speak my mind, vents his spirit. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 
They don't care to know. They just want to be heard. We live in a world of Instagram and Facebook influencers where all we want to do is express what we think. We have no desire in actually learning and understanding, though. Lots of instructions. Is this you? Or in one of these aspects, you? Self-inspect. Our heart is bound up in foolishness because our flesh is sinful. And we're at war. If you're a Christian, your soul, your spirit in Christ is at war with your flesh that remains in the presence of sin. And so there's a war over the foolishness that looks to overtake our lives. So we have to inspect and say, am I puffed up with conceit and therefore shutting down the commandments of God? Or am I wise and receiving commandments and receiving instruction? Because the characteristics of the wise heart Proverbs 10, verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments. Proverbs 13, 20, the one who is wise is cautious, turns away from evil. Proverbs 18, 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks understanding. So, let's have wise hearts. Let's seek understanding from God's Word. Let's not be puffed up. Let's listen to the wisdom of God. Now, let's come back to 1 Timothy. Paul is giving wisdom and behavior to which the children of God are called. Very, very practical instructions. Number one, I'll give you three things this morning. Number one, to honor those in authority. To honor those in authority. We see that let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Before I get into the details of this verse, from a general sense, Paul has been moving through different aspects by which there should be an honoring of those in authority. Those in economic authority, employers, governmental authority, Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 2, he writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And we just looked last week to honor those in spiritual authority. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It is a foremost passion of the human heart to complain about authorities. It's kind of like the national sport, right? We talk about our employers, politics, and the church leaders we don't like. We dishonor, we might disdain, we rage against them, the human heart is, you must understand this, the human heart at its base level is anti-authoritarian. It is. What is the first sin that's committed in the Garden of Eden? God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve are like, ah, we don't think he needs to be listened to. We will become our own authority, determine what we think is right, a.k.a. the heart of a fool, take the fruit, and we will become our own authority. Be aware of this. One of the marks of the Christian is recognizing and honoring the authorities that God has put in place. Honor those in authority. Specifically in this passage, number two, so honor authorities, and then number two, honor your employer. Honor your employer. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all 
the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, before we get into this, I've already made like an interpretive application for you with my number two point by saying, honor your employer. But the text actually says, you who are under the yoke as bond servants. The Greek word doulos, which is applied as indentured servant, but also as slave. Allow me for just a moment, if you would, an excursus for just a few moments on talking about slavery. Because if we're going to understand God's word right and also apply this rightly, let's also understand the context in which this is speaking. When we think of slavery, we have to remember that we are all products of our moment in history. The way you think, the values you hold, even the viewpoints are informed largely by your cultural moment, by your historical moment. So when we come to the Word of God, we have to actively identify and say, what are my cultural lenses? What are my historical lenses that I'm looking at this? What do I think of when I hear that? And is that what the text is referring to? And how should I think about it clearly? Just principles of good interpretation. I grew up in East Africa. I was born in Houston, five years old. My family, we moved to Tanzania, East Africa. So sub-Saharan East Africa, East Coast, I remember one of those formative memories standing in Old Town, Stone Town, Zanzibar Island. And standing there at the port in Zanzibar Island, there is a church, and right next to the church, because the church was built there to, to memorialize, frankly, the travesties of the slave trade that happened there. But there was a pit and all of these chains that are still there today where you can see where the slave trade from sub-Saharan Africa happened. The slave trade in sub-Saharan Africa was mostly via Indians and Arabs, but mostly Arabs. And so even to this day, there is, there is a cultural animosity and struggle between specifically sub-Saharan Africans and those ethnic groups because of that history. So we understand slavery has historical roots, not only in Africa, but all the way down through history. Today, it is estimated that there's anywhere from between 30 to 40 million slaves worldwide right now. So slavery is a very real issue. Historically, it's also important to understand that even as the Nazis industrialized the Holocaust of the Jews, okay, so the Jews and the Israelites have always been hated by a large majority of peoples. There have been different points in history to systematically destroy the Jews, it was the Nazis who industrialized slavery, uh, sorry, industrialized the Holocaust, the extermination of the Jews, to disproportionate and extreme measures. Okay, in like measure, though slavery has existed, it was in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries that Europe and then the Americas industrialized the slave trade to heights that had never before been seen. They industrialized a different type of holocaust that greatly affected a great number of people. Now you might say, holocaust? Yeah, there, there, there was a ton of people that died as a result of the industrialization of an institutionalization of the slave trade. Now, what is fascinating, fascinating, that might be the wrong word in using this, fascinating historically, okay? And as we look at correlations, do you know, you know one of the, the driving correlations between the Nazi extermination of the Jews and the industrialization specifically of the African peoples is the rise of Darwinism 
an evolutionary theory. Because once you can actually determine and say through your own ideologues that these people are not really people and that we're a higher form, therefore you can treat them however you want and their deaths are not really that ma matter that much because they're not really humans anywhere. They're more like animals. So that Darwinism and that evolutionary theory actually helped propel the industrialization of institutionalized slavery. Now, when we think of slavery... Again, we are products of our historical moment. When we think of slavery, we think of institutionalized, racial-based slavery, specifically African black-skinned peoples of the last few centuries with tangible effects that are still present today. There are generations that can still remember grandpa, great-grandfather, and relatives affected by that travesty. And so we need to recognize that when we think about slavery in our, in our day, day and age, it is a travesty and tragedy of history. There's no other word for it. Now, how do we understand the Bible in regards to slavery? The Bible, when we look at slavery, it is an institutionalized economic slavery. Now, I'm not saying that this is better. I'm not saying that it's okay. I'm just saying it's different. Anyone could become a slave. It wasn't just located around, as we've seen in the last few centuries, specifically from the African continent, but rather, anyone could become a slave. If you were conquered, you could be brought into slavery. You could be sold into slavery. And what was also different is that slaves could attain freedom, which was really unheard of in the institutionalized slavery of the last few centuries here. Some slaves were even adopted into families. Some even rose to prominence as teachers, magistrates. Now, were there injustices in this institution of slavery? The answer is yes, of course. But it was a different kind of institution. Let me be very clear, very, very clear. I am not defending the institution, but rather pointing out the historical differences. And so as we look at it, we want to make sure that we're cognizant of those. Now, unfortunately, some... Even Christians, and there are some even pastoral writings, specifically the colonial era, even here in the States, where Christians defended the racial slavery of the South because, quote, the Bible does not condemn slavery. Is this true, though? The answer is yes and no. Say, what a diplomat. Well, let me, let me look at this. Let's be honest, it does not condemn the institution of slavery. The Bible does not seek reformation of society, hear me out, by changing structures, but rather by changing the hearts that will change the structures. You must understand this. All right, let me, let me tease this out just a little bit further. Christianity was never designed to be a political movement, but over time, it does naturally affect political policy. Alexander McLaren wrote that the gospel meddles directly with no political or social arrangements, but lays down principles which will profoundly affect these and leaves them to soak in the general mind. In nations where Christianity spread and took firm hold, slavery was brought to an end through the efforts of gospel, Bible-governed Christians. Slavery thrived under Darwinism, and it is no mistake that in the United Kingdom, 
in the 18th, 17th, 18th century, and then in the Americas in the 19th, 20th century, that with the rise of gospel understanding came the abolishment of slavery. You will not find those in the history books of public schools because secularism today stands upon the moral foundations that Christianity laid down and then strips away the God that makes those moralities sensible. And now they have morality and it doesn't even make sense why they have morality. Because once you remove God from the equation, why does it matter how we treat each other? Okay. It does not attack the specific institutions, but, but, but hear me out. The seeds of the emancipation of slaves are in the Bible, which teaches that all men are created by God and made in his image, Genesis 1. And he, it condemns those, even in the Old Testament, who kidnap and sell a person, Exodus 21. And then in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, it shows that a slave can truly be a brother in the Lord and that we are to serve one another and love one another. Now, when the gospel takes root and when hearts are changed, society is changed. If you try and change the structures without the heart, you may abolish the structure, but I promise racism will just find house in a different form and another aspect of society. No, Scripture does not attack the institution, but its teachings make the institution untenable. Christianity is not compatible, compatible with slavery in any form. Now, the Bible aims higher than repealing societal structures of slaves and masters. And, and this, this, this is all, forgive me, foundation and introduction. You're like, when do we get to the text? Right now. Okay. It's important to understand this. This is why Paul goes right into this. The Apostle Paul, scriptures aim higher than repealing societal structures of slaves and masters. It rather looks to change the heart where a master would sacrifice himself for a slave out of love. And a slave would joyfully endure suffering in order to honor God. When the heart is changed like that, Society will change. Because what could affect a change like that? Only a God transformation. Okay, we're going to come back to this in just a moment. What is the principle for the text, though, for us today? If we were to make a correlation between slaves, masters, and the structures and the relationship, we can make a correlation to employers and employees. Now, some of you are like, amen, believe me, it does feel like slavery. Uh, when we look at the correlation, look at this. Those who work, for those who are in authority, this is directed at the worker. They are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, if you say, wait, now again, this, this, is, this is true of only slaves and masters. This isn't for us today. No, arguing from, frankly, greater to lesser. In other words, if it's true of this in the most horrid of circumstances, how much more true is it for you who works a normal job? Worthy of all honor. Regard your employer of all honor. Now, what does this look like for you? You need to ask that question. What does it look like for you this week? How can I regard my employer worthy of all honor? 
so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Do you see what's at stake here? How we relate within these constructs, what is at stake? Is that the name of God might be reviled because of the way you treat and talk about your employer. That the teaching may be brought into disrepute. Well, if that's the way you act, why should I follow Christ? You're no different than anybody else. The teaching is brought into disrepute. Oh, and by the way, if you have an employer that is a believer, what is what we think? Well, I, well, they're a believer. They should give me a discount. They should give me extra special treatments because I am a brother in Christ. Actually, the scripture says, well, there, they, there should be extra special treatment because they're a brother in Christ, but it actually comes from you to them. In other words, don't expect more thinking that you deserve more because they are a brother or a sister, but rather because they're a brother or a sister, that should incite you to work all the more because you're actually serving one in the member of the household of God. Lots of other scriptures speak to the relation between employees and employers. 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. From slavery to employer-employee relationships, doesn't matter if they are good and gentle or unjust, demonstrate Christ. Now, you cannot wield and should not wield these texts to legitimize an institution that is undone by the core teachings of Scripture, this is in our own hearts and attitudes how we are to act. Bond servants, Colossians 3.22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, but not by way of eye service. Don't just serve your employer because they see it and as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now there's instructions, Ephesians 6.9 and Colossians 4.1, masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that they that you also have a master in heaven. So principles of how we interact with one another and how we understand this text. Number three, let's look at the third point here. Here's the warning. Beware the puffed up heart, the unteachable heart. This unteachable heart, rather than listening to the words of Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, in other words, a teaching that produces godliness, they have an unhealthy craving for what? for controversy and quarrels. Do you not see in Proverbs the, the fool wants to be heard? The fool wants to vent their spirit. The fool wants to just speak their opinion. It's amazing. The foolish heart is characterized by the love of empty, controversial, quarrelsome debate. This is the one that loves to argue and debate over non-centric issues. What does the puffed up heart look like? Well, it produces certain types of fruit. It produces envy. It wants attention, and it's envious when other people get attention. It's envious when other people get honor and recognition. It produces dissension, disunity. It slanders because you want to slander and bring the other person lower so you can be higher. It creates evil suspicions. Part of the foolish, unteachable heart is the suspicion of what are they saying about me? What are they doing? 
How do I control the narrative and the conversation in order to make sure that I am elevated? They produce constant friction. It's just constant friction wherever they go. And they think godliness is a means of gain, that being godly will help them to climb the ladder of spiritual influence and recognition. Don't be puffed up. Receive the words and teachings of Jesus that changes hearts and society. Honor one another. Honor the widows. Honor the elders. Honor your employers. Honor those in authority above you. Demonstrate a characteristic in your Christian life that is patently different than the rest of society. But if you're so puffed up with pride and thinking that you know it all, Scripture says you don't really understand anything. Rather, the challenge is receive the words and the teachings of Jesus. Again, the teachings that changes hearts and society. What did Jesus say? John chapter 13, verse 13 to 16. Turn there with me if you would, or it'll be up here on the screen either way. But I would encourage you to turn there. John 13, 13. Masters and slaves, employees and employers, authorities and those under authority. Scripture aims higher than just simply changing external structures. Scripture wants to change hearts. God wants to change hearts. He wants to transform society through changed hearts. Where do we see this lived out? John 13, 13 to 16. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You call me an authority, you call me a master. You're right. I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, do you hear this? Remember I talked about the tenets of Christianity undoing institutions and changing society? Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. What do we see in the person of Christ? Do we not see both ends of these truths? That Jesus, the master, gave himself for us who are servants and slaves of evil and unrighteousness. We are servants and slaves as enemies of God. But the master, see, this is what the gospel is. It is the master who comes and gives himself for the slave, even the slave who hates him. But did not Jesus also become a servant to all? A servant to all in order to wash the feet of the unworthy. So when Paul says, and he gives these instructions about let all who under yoke as bondservants and believing masters and to understand these things, that when we live these things out, these are not just good principles for living, but they image Christ himself. This is the gospel. It is our master that we are called to 
emulate. And when we live out the gospel, brothers and sisters, when we live out the gospel and we see who our Lord is, I promise you, the world will be changed. Institutions will be undone. Society will be transformed because the power of the gospel not only changes lives, it repeals darkness and puts the demons to flight. How we interact, even in our places of employment, has profound power to change the world if we will exhibit Christ well. When we live out the gospel, the world will be changed. It begins in the small things. Like this week, when you go to work, will you bring the name of God and the teaching into honor by the way you act, will you emulate Christ? Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us thinking, understanding minds, receptive, soft hearts, broken spirits ready to receive instruction. These instructions were given during a day where slavery existed. And we remember the travesties of slavery in our recent history and we grieve over the families and the lives that have been touched by it. And though we grieve, O oh God, may we also be reminded that we are called, all of us without exception, as your people, as children of God, regardless of our skin color, our ethnicity, or our background, to emulate Christ in whatever our situation. And that when the gospel shines forth, society is changed for the glory of God. I pray that it would begin this week here in this Lynchburg, Virginia, to those we interact with, so that Christ might be exalted, that the name of God might be honored. And that the teaching, instead of being reviled, would be honored. Help my brothers and sisters, help me, guide us this day. Destroy the foolish heart within us. Give us a heart of flesh, a heart of wisdom, a wise heart that seeks you first. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.